0: Hey there, guys, and thanks for being here for this new episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Got a bunch of things to talk about here today. Zack Snyder says all the new footage he's shooting will equal about five minutes or so of new footage in the Justice League when it's all said and done. Is it getting harder and harder to get hyped up for these big upcoming movies when right now we don't even know if those movies are coming out? Is Johnny Depp's career completely finished? And will StageCraft, that technology they use to make Mandalorian, gonna replace green screen we talk about this and a whole bunch more sit back relax and let's get to open mic All right, guys, glad you're joining us here today for this open mic. And of course, this is just all open questions sent in specifically by our Patreon supporters. So thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who sent in all these topics and questions that we're going to be covering today on this episode of the podcast. So let's not waste any more time and get right into it. We're going to start things off with Sebastian uh, Trulio, who writes, hey, Gio. Maybe I missed you mentioning, but what's your opinion on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, if you have watched it? Recently binged it with my wife and always laughed with this cop show. You know it's funny, Sebastian, that you bring this up? I literally was yesterday talking to my wife about this. Okay, so a little bit of background. I've seen four or five episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't hate it, but it didn't really seem like anything special to me. I was a little bit bored by it. So I never really watched any more than that. My wife, however, did start watching it about a year or so ago. Maybe it was two years now. I can't remember exactly, but she loved it. And it's kind of funny that it came up yesterday. We were kind of scrolling through some of our streaming services, looking for something to watch while we were eating dinner. And, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine was kind of on the screen. She was like, have you watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I'm like, well, we talked about this last year. She really wants me to start watching it again. So as of right now, I haven't really watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like I said, I've watched a few episodes. Wasn't really for me. I didn't like it all that much. But I'm going to give it another chance because my wife says she loves it. So I'll give it a shot. You know what else was like that? Community. The show Community. I had seen a couple of episodes of Community early on and I didn't love them. So I kind of gave up on the show. And then my wife got into it much later. Loved it, told me to start watching and I gave it another shot and I actually ended up really liking Community. So who knows? Maybe Brooklyn Nine-Nine will be the next Community for me, I suppose. All right, next up. Ben Donnelly writes, while Bloodshot is not a very good movie, I'm glad it's getting a sequel. Why? Because it's good for both movie fans and filmmaking employees to have comic book fare outside of Disney slash Marvel slash Warner Brothers slash DC bubble. More options, darker and more mature movies, and it keeps the genre fresh. So I'm content to let them try at least once. What do you think, John? Well, I mean, you do have a point. Look, one of the things that we really need, the, the next kind of evolution, I think, in this golden age of comic book movies where, you know, comic book movies are the most dominant movies at the box office and stuff like that. The next evolution we need is another player besides Marvel and DC, right? And there have been a couple of things over the years that have been outside of Marvel and DC, yes, but we really need, I believe, not anyone as big as Marvel and DC, but somebody significant. We need a significant player to enter the arena. Bloodshot kind of represented that first foyer into it, right? Where they could maybe introduce a new player. So on the one hand, yeah, it's good to have these movies come out. But on the other hand, if they come into the arena and they offer up crap, and listen, you know me, I'm a dieselite. I am a big self-professed Vin Diesel fan. But I'm also a big Steven Spielberg fan. I don't love every movie Steven Spielberg's made. And this was not a good movie. Bloodshot was a bad movie. Now, it's it's all subjective, of course. Everybody will have different opinions. But for my point of view, it's a pretty bad movie. And for new a new player to come into the arena offering up bad movies, the danger of that is it's just going to convince the movie-going audience more and more, oh, the only real comic book movies that are going to be Marvel and DC. Because we went to see this other movie made by a non-Marvel and DC player, and it was crap. So considering that first Bloodshot was bad, I would personally rather them leave Bloodshot behind for now and try again with a different property. Try again with a different property that won't have the same baggage associated with it that Bloodshot does. So I don't know that. That's just my take on it. Who knows? We need a new player, but we need the new players to come out with strong material, or else it's just going to you know drive the mass majority of movie-going audiences more and more just to Marvel and DC. And I think for a healthy environment, we need another player, but it's got to be good content. So I'm not sure how I feel about that, Ben. All right, next up, Brent Gilson writes. Hey, John, I know you've talked about how the movie Inglorious Bastards was a movie you hated at first, but then after watching it a second time, you fell in love with it. That's absolutely true. It's really the only movie I can think of that I did that with, but that is the big example for me. Yes. Was there ever a movie where you loved it the first time watching it, but thought it was terrible after the second time watching? Um, Besides my own, I did a, a fan film called Rise of the Trudis that I thought for a long time was the greatest thing ever. And then I went 10 years in between watching it. And then I showed it to my wife for the first time, all proud of it. And as I was watching it, I was horrified with how awful it was. (laughs) So there was that. Um, No, I can't really think of any movies that I totally loved on the first viewing and then completely switched to absolutely hating it on the second viewing. Like a big one for me is Phantom Menace. Where I loved it on the first viewing, <clears throat> but it became a progressive thing with Phantom Menace. Where the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth times that I saw it, I just gradually liked it less and less and less and less and less till it finally got to the point that I completely hated it. But I can't think of any movie that was the reverse of my Inglorious Bastards experience. I saw Inglorious Bastards the first time, hated it. About a year and a half later, I watched it again. And I was like, why, what, what, why did I hate this? This movie amazing. And I like freaked out with how amazing it was. Uh, I can't really think of an example in reverse where I totally hated a movie or totally loved a movie at first and then totally hated it just on its second viewing. So I'll think more about it, but I can't think of any others. All right. Thanks for that, Brent. Uh, Kinsley Major writes, hey, John. Your expressions about your grandfather were heartfelt, brother. Oh, thanks so much, man. For those of you who missed my grandfather recently passed away, my Italian grandfather, my nono, uh, my condolences. Has your family seen your documentary? Uh, What would your Oscar speech sound like? Uh, My family has not seen my documentary yet. I am going to make sure I arrange for them to see it before it goes public. By the way, you guys listening to open mic right now, uh, you're going to be the first people to hear this. I am going to be announcing a release date when it's going to be available for you to watch it uh, uh, on streaming uh, this week. This week. So make sure you're watching the John Campus show this week. This week, I'm going to be making an announcement as to when I'm going to be releasing the movie uh, online for people to watch it and where you'll be able to rent it and and things like that. Uh, But at any rate, no, my family hasn't seen it yet. What would my Oscar speech be like? Um, It would probably start with something like, what the hell? has gone wrong with you people that you would give me the win. Uh, yeah. I'm not getting nominated for any Oscar, mm. but I'll tell you what, you know, Erin Cummings, who's a, an actress, of course, and is on my show every week. She, you know, tells this great. She says this great. She goes, every time she gets any role, Whether it's a a major role in a a television series or a minor role in a a guest role in a series or a guest spot or a a small part in a movie. She's going to be, of course, uh, appearing in the upcoming Will Smith movie, King Richard. She's really excited about that. But she says it best. She's like, every time I get any of these roles, without intentionally doing it, in the back of my head, I'm already planning my Emmy or Oscar acceptance speech. Uh, I don't do that. I don't do that. Um, but I, I guess, you know, I've been lucky enough to win a, a bunch of awards, whether it's, uh, you know, the Academy of Web Television or whether it was uh film threat or whether it was uh, the bloggies or whether it was whatever. I, I've had the chance to win several awards. I've been very lucky that way. And, you know, I think if I ever won an Oscar, which I never will, but if I ever did, it would be very similar to those speeches, which is. I'm just floored to be in a a room with other nominees who are just so incredibly gifted. I'm always floored by talented people. And I'm always overwhelmed by talented people. Any of these award ceremonies I've ever been to, I've always just kind of been in awe of the people I was in the room with and the fact that, oh, my God, I get to share a room with these people. It's always amazing to me. Um, And if I ever got to actually go to the Oscars, that would be that. But, you know, that's delusions of grandeur. That's never going to happen. All right. Anyway, next up. Angela Dashner writes looking for some new movies to watch during quarantine wanted to catch up on some documentary films suggest some suggestions please loved your trailer can't wait to see your film thank you so much Angela I appreciate that and of course the trailer for my uh, my movie my documentary movie trailers a love story is now out and online you can go see it on YouTube um okay so the two that really come to me right now like, if somebody were to say to me, Hey, I'm home right now. I want, I need something to watch right now. I'm, I'm thinking documentary. There's two things that really jump to mind right now. Number one is the social dilemma, which has actually been out for a little bit, but I only finally got around to watching it a couple of weeks ago. The social dilemma that basically looks at really the dark side of social media and really what social media is doing to us. And even if it isn't intentional, it's, A very, very kind of disturbing, but very eye-opening thing. Now, here's the one thing I always tell people about The Social Dilemma. They decided in this documentary to mix in some, like they have this fictitious story that plays throughout the documentary, right? So they'll be talking about a certain subject and then we cut to this family and this is all scripted. We cut to this family that's all scripted about how they start living out what they were just talking about in the documentary part. And then we cut back to the regular documentary and then we cut back to that family again and see how things are progressing in that family. So you've got the documentary elements kind of mixed in with scripted narrative being told, right? And the scripted the scripted narrative is a minority of the film. And there are parts of it that are actually quite good. But then later in the film, there are scripted narrative things as we follow the son and this family that gets really over-the-top melodramatic and it kind of takes away from it. But that notwithstanding, it's really good. Overall, it's really, really good. It's well-presented. It's well-laid out. uh, It's well-edited. So I would get that one. The other one is, I can't remember the name of it specifically, but if you search for it on Netflix... It's actually a documentary series on video games, and I cannot remember the name of it off the top of my head. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't prep these questions in advance, so I can't remember the name of it, but I'm sure if you go to uh, Netflix or just search online for Netflix um, video game docu-series, I'm sure it'll come up, and uh, that one is another one that both Ann and I really enjoyed. All right. Happy viewing, Angela. All right. Next up, Christian Rubiano. Christian Rubiano writes... Hey, John, I hope all is well. All is well, Christian. Thank you so much. One of my favorite shows is The Chai. It's very similar to The Wire, but it takes place in the windy city of Chicago. Have you seen it? If so, your thoughts? Nope, I've never seen it. I've, I believe I've heard of it, but I've never ever watched The Chai. Now I watch another cop show based in Chicago called Chicago PD, but that's about as close as I get to it. But I've, I've honestly never watched The Chai, unfortunately. Okay. Thanks for that, Christian. All right. Next up, we've got Kyle Garrett who writes. I assume Peacock, the NBC, I mean, you know what? Peacock, not a bad little streaming service. I just hate the damn name. Anyway, I assume Peacock is desperate for content. Uh, since they own the rights, why don't they just make a mystery Men sequel? Sure, it doesn't have the same following as Justice League, but it uh, but it should be relatively cheap to make. Here's the thing, Kyle. What, okay, relatively cheap. What does relatively cheap mean? It still means minimum 30 million dollars. I mean, a big budget film today, you're talking 120, 130. So, okay, 100 million less than that. But you're still talking about investing 20 to $30 million. And that's if you keep the budget really low, right? 20 to 30 million. That's with a low budget. What are you getting for that? Could a a Mystery Men, look, there's no movie I want a sequel to more than I want a sequel to Mystery Men. I've talked about this all the time. I love Mystery Men. Mystery Men was a movie far ahead of its time. Ben Stiller, Hank Azaria, uh, William H. Macy. I mean, on and on and on. This movie was amazing and years ahead of its time. I would love to see another one. But why not just make it? because you're throwing tens of millions of dollars away. You have to ask, what would we get? Would putting would investing 20 to 30 million dollars on a Mystery Men movie get you earn you 20 to 30 million in revenue on Peacock? The answer to that is probably no. As much as it pains me to say it, the answer to that is probably no. So, I'm not sure. Now, a theatrical release of a Mystery Men for 20 to 30 million Yeah, I believe a mystery men movie in theaters could maybe generate 60 to 70 to 80 million dollars at the box office, which would make it profitable at that range. But on Peacock, I just don't see you getting the return on that investment. So they got to be careful not just to lose money. But oh, my God, Kyle, I would love it. I would absolutely love it. All right. Next one up. Ian writes, hey, John. Have you watched Truth Seekers on Amazon Prime with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg? I enjoyed it and would recommend the show. No, I have not, but its I've got it queued up. Uh, I am a huge fan ever since Shaun of the Dead, like most of you. Ever since Shaun of the Dead, I have been a huge fan of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I love these guys. I love seeing them on screen. Um, Even in a movie that I didn't like that they did. Remember they did that movie, Paul, about the alien that Seth Rogen did the voice for? awful movie, actually. I thought it was a bad movie, but I didn't care that it was a bad movie because I just like seeing Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Uh, I love these guys, so I have not started watching it yet, but I do have it queued up. I'm going to be watching it in the next coming weeks because uh, I just love these guys. I can't wait to see it. Thank you for the recommendation. All right. Next up, we've got Alexander Kent, who writes, Greetings, John. On the topic of Friday about Disney Plus's one-year anniversary and its future, I have a question about a Marvel property that Sony owns. Well, technically speaking, Alexander, Sony doesn't own any Marvel property. They have a license. they currently hold the license, but they don't technically own. It's a, it's a fine line, but it's a very important distinction to make. Anyway, uh, about a Marvel property that Sony owns. Do you think we will see any of the Marvel slash Sony movies on Disney Plus or will Sony go elsewhere? Or maybe Sony creates a subscription of their own. Your thoughts and thanks. All right, so here's the thing. And it's interesting you bring this question up because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I just heard that like Spider-Man Far From Home and Homecoming are heading to Disney Plus. But that's not because Marvel gets to say they go on Disney Plus. Those movies are licensed under Sony. Sony decides where those movies go. Now you might say but John for Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home Marvel was the production company they actually made the movie in in cooperation with Sony so why can't they put it on their own just their own uh, streaming service The answer to that is because you got to always understand there are two different bodies when it comes to movies When it comes to getting movies made and out in theaters or out on streaming there is two very different branches One is the production company. That's the company that makes the movie. But the second is the distribution company, the distributor. The distributor gets to decide what happens to that movie once it's made. So, for example, uh, let's say I made my uh, Felipe the Sentient Dancing Microphone movie. Okay, I'm the production company. I make that movie. And it costs me... Yeah, I don't know, $75 million to make it. So I make that movie, but now I have no way of getting it out to theaters or whatever. I'm not a, I'm not a distribution company. I don't have those at my disposal. Right? So I sell the distribution rights to, for argument's sake, let's say, um, fast Eddie's distribution company. All right. I'm just making it up. So now I am the production company of Felipe, the sentient dancing microphone, and Fast Eddie's distribution company is now the official distributor of that movie. Fast Eddie, now I'm oversimplifying it, but this gives you a basic idea. Fast Eddie, he now gets to decide what happens to my movie, right? He gets to decide, do we take this theatrical? If we take it theatrical, how wide of a release? If we do that, how much do we spend on marketing? Because by the way, the distribution company pays for the marketing then, or do we forego the theaters? Do we take it straight to streaming? Do we put it out as a premium rental? Uh, And if we put it on streaming, where do we put it? Like these are all decisions that the distribution company makes. Now, for a lot of the big, big films in Hollywood, like a lot of times the Warner Brothers films or Sony Brothers films, more times than not, these companies have their own production units and their own distribution arms. But a lot of movies that come out get made by one production company and distributed by another. Sony for Spider-Man homecoming and Spider-Man far from home. They are the distribution company. They decide where that movie goes, but that means they can choose to put it on Disney plus just as much as they can choose to put it on HBO max or put it on Peacock or put it wherever they want, put it on Amazon. They get to choose where it goes. They get to choose where it goes. And obviously it's a good fit to put it on Disney plus, but, Disney plus will have to pay Sony just like any other streamer would for the rights to put Spider-Man Far from home and Spider-Man homecoming onto Disney plus even though Disney is the production company they will have to pay Sony to put it on Disney plus it's a good fit um and that will stand true of any Sony movie any Sony movie could end up on Disney plus if they wanted it but Disney plus seems to be very specifically about Disney's own properties. So it's unlikely you'll see Sony standalone stuff appear on Disney plus, but I mean, it's possible or Disney could acquire it and put it on Hulu, whatever. So I believe it's already happening, Alexander. And I believe we will see it happen again in the future. All right. Uh, next up we've got Josh Bing who writes, John, did you watch the season eight premiere of Chicago PD? I was just talking about Chicago PD and yes, I did watch the season premiere. I won't give away any spoilers, but they really brought the tension with this episode. If you've watched the show from season one to now, you can really see how it's changed and evolved, especially with them tackling things like policing in the wake of COVID and the heightened awareness of police racism and the need for reform. Uh, Uh, LaRoyce Hawkins and Jason Beige. I've never known how to pronounce Jason Beige's last name. The actors for Atwater and Voight really brought it this episode. It was a beautifully written premiere. Yeah, it was. It was a very, very good premiere. My one my one fear though is this. I don't want to see this show change too radically. I thought the season finale of last season was a beautiful unintentional perfect setup with the you know social unrest that we've had in, in the in the united states it was perfectly positioned for that and they pick up on that theme in the new one but they also suggest like some major major changes to the very nature of the show and i don't know that i want those major changes to the nature of the show so i don't know but yes i did enjoy the premiere very much josh bing thanks for writing that in all right next up mr bondy writes hey john Serious question here, kind of year defining. We hear a lot about an important man in America, not going to be political here, but yet we never hear him talk. Yes, I'm talking about Tom of the House Aaron. Of course, Aaron Cummings, her husband is Tom. Uh, Anyway, Tom Degnan. Anyway, so my brother, when are we going to have it here? When are we going to see the Tominator unleash his nerd power here? Of course, with a camera, all the time on Aaron's face. Because we have to see her expression. Aaron let Tom Tom come and play with us. Thank you. So Aaron Cummings. Who is on my show weekly. She is married to another actor. Um, uh, Tom Degnan. Who's very good. And uh, he's a great guy. Super nerdy. Hardcore nerdy guy. But it's funny. He's nerdy. But he's like six foot two. I'd guess a good solid 230. Like bodybuilder physique kind of guy. But um, And he's great. Ann and I love hanging out with Aaron and Tom. Uh, As a matter of fact, they're going to be coming over this week so we can play Game of Thrones Catan. We're going to be playing that over here this week. Anyway, uh, that's how we party in Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. We play Game of Thrones Catan. Anyway, uh, yeah, I do want to have him on. I want to have him on. He's just got such a great uh, perspective on things. Again, like Aaron, he's an actor. He's a working actor in the business. I just love to get his perspective on things. So hopefully soon, Mr. Bondi. Hopefully soon. All right, next up. Uh, Dacian Preden Halliburin writes, Hi, John. Uh, This has nothing to do with movies, but as you are a sports fan, what NBA trade or free agent signing would you like to see happen? Thanks. Um... What trade would I like to see happen? You know, they—they, a lot of times, sports fans, they think about trades, and they're like, trade LeBron James to this team for a bag of hockey pucks. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't do that. But I'll tell you one that has become very interesting to me, and that's Russell Westbrook. Um, Russell Westbrook, who right now is on the Houston Rockets, plays with plays with James Harden. That is a situation that is not working. Like, I'm sorry, like Houston Rockets play this form of small ball, which gives them some decent success in the regular season, but it is not what will win in the playoffs. And that has been proven to them year after year. And I think Russell Westbrook, I'm hearing things that he wants to get out of Houston. And I think Houston needs to retool. What the team they have right now cannot win a championship. Now, look, not every team needs to win a championship every year to be considered a good season. But when you're Houston and you're at the level that the Rockets are at, you're thinking championship. And I'm sorry to any Houston Rockets fans who are listening to this right now. The way that team is built currently cannot win a championship. The way that team is currently built can have another great successful regular season, but they are not going to win a championship. They're not going to win the Western Division, let alone win an NBA title. Russell Westbrook becomes a very tradable piece. This guy is a triple-double machine. He may be a little hard to deal with, but if you find the right environment for that, I think it could work quite well. And so there's two teams that come to mind, but really one. But I don't know if they have the cap room to do it. I think Russell Westbrook would be a great fit. When you look at how this other team is built... I think Russell Westbrook would be a great fit, and that's the 76ers. I I think Russell Westbrook going to the 76ers becomes a major, major problem, not just for the East, but for the league. So that is a, a trade I am uh, I'm we'd be very interested in seeing, Dakin. Okay. Uh next up, Lee Page writes. John saw freaky on Thursday night theater was to its allowed capacity. Most people I've uh, most people I've seen in a theater yet. Anyway, the movie was a solid B plus and Vince Vaughn was fantastic. If you like goofy horror comedy, then you'll enjoy this one. I'll tell you what this new movie freaky with, with Vince Vaughn. That's like a horror comedy take on freaky Friday. That trailer came out of nowhere last month, like came out of nowhere. And it sounds so dumb. But you watch the trailer, and I think Aaron was actually here with me when we watched the trailer for the first time. We're like, this looks really charming. Like, surprisingly, pardon me, disarmingly good. Surprisingly and disarmingly disarmingly good. Like, I couldn't believe how much I was enjoying the trailer. Even though the concept of it sounds so dumb, it just looks really charming, and I wanna see it. And Ann and I, look, honestly, Anne and I were talking a lot about maybe running out to Orange County to go watch it because I believe the movie theaters that I've been to, I've only gone twice. But the two times I've gone to movie theaters in the last eight months, they have done a remarkable job of having great safety protocols in place. And I felt far safer in those environments than I have in a grocery store, like far safer. That being said the U S right now and a lot of places around the world, but specifically in the U S is experiencing mind boggling spikes in COVID right now Like we're talking 150,000 new cases a day, a day, the failure of this country to properly deal with the COVID pandemic since February is unforgivable, but here we are. Um, and with these spikes reaching new highs, like the daily record is being broken every day. Um, Anne and I were like, you know what? We're going to start limiting going to any indoor place that we don't have to go to. Like groceries, we have to get groceries. There's that. But any place we don't have to be indoors, we're probably going to start avoiding going. At least until we start to see a decline in these numbers. For now, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to miss. So, but soon, it'll be out on streaming soon. And I am definitely going to check it out because I thought the trailer was great. Thanks for the recommendation on that, Lee. All right. Uh, Wade uh, Thompson writes, hello, John, for the Atlanta. Uh, Thank you so much. So with Disney having so powerful online streaming with Hulu and Disney Plus, don't forget ESPN as well, ESPN Plus, the Disney shows are for family and Hulu is for everyone. Is Disney overseeing a Hulu show? Also, Fox TV is Disney. Are they overseeing that, too? If so, that's a lot of hands in the fire. Oh, yeah, Disney oversees all of it. But listen, this isn't new. Like, they've been doing this with the movies forever. Disney oversees Disney Pictures, Pixar, Disney Animation, Lucasfilm, Marvel, um, on and on. I mean, They have a lot of branches. They have a lot of branches. Now they each have their team, right? They each have their team, and they have an internal structure, an internal, you know, uh, leadership chart of how this all gets managed. So it's actually not as untenable as you might think off the top. Again, just think of it in terms of they've been doing this forever with their movie division. Now they're just also doing it with their streaming and television divisions as well. It's really nothing new for them, so it's not that big of a deal. All right, next up. C- Craig Wooten writes, "Hey, John. I'm curious as to why you think Johnny Depp will be banished from Hollywood for spousal abuse when we have examples like Mel Gibson, whose wife made similar claims, and we have heard tapes of him threatening her. Uh, Is is it the change in attitudes, Depp being a more notable celebrity, something else? Or do you think Depp can get a second act? Well, this is a really... uh, Kate, first of all, we're now talking about things that are way outside my purview as, as a film commentator, right? Like this is major societal stuff. So this is just my opinion, all right? Nothing authoritative, just this is an opinion. There you got to understand when Mel Gibson, make no mistake, like like don't misinterpret history. It's not like Mel Gibson got himself in trouble and nothing nothing happened. His career just went on completely as normal. That's not what happened. When Mel Gibson was going through his, you know, self-inflicted problems, He took major hits. Um, You know, there are several high profile, hugely successful movies that he was supposed to star in that dropped him. There were movies that he had already shot that ended up getting delayed for a very long time because people didn't know if they, studios didn't even know if they wanted to put their movies out now because it had Mel Gibson in it. And if you look, if you could transport yourself in time Back to 2004, say, and look at what Mel, what Mel Gibson's place in Hollywood was in, say, 2004, it is a far cry from what it is in 2020. Mel Gibson is a guy whose name is still there and who gets things. But if you had told, if you've gone back in 2004, 2005, And said, hey, guess what? In about 15 years, yeah, Mel Gibson's big movie that year is going to be him starring as a broken down Santa Claus in some low budget, you know, limited release movie called Fat Man. That's going to be Mel Gibson's career 15 years from now. You wouldn't believe it because Mel Gibson was literally one of the kings of Hollywood at the time. So from my point perspective... What happened, the difference between what happened with Mel and now with Johnny is that, I mean, from a pragmatic point of view at any rate, is that once all the crap happened with Gibson, he just kind of owned it and then kept his head down. Like, he just kind of owned it, kept his head down. And look, we've been all through this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard stuff. We've been talking about how Hollywood loves a comeback story. Hollywood loves a comeback story. The, the problem, though, is that and this is the difference between, I think, the Mel Gibson situation and the Johnny Depp situation is whereas Mel Gibson just, you know, kind of accepted responsibility and then just kept his head down for a while. Johnny Depp has not. And I'm not sitting here. I have i wasn't there in Johnny Depp's relationship with Amber Heard. I wasn't in court to hear the months and months of, of evidence and testimony. So I don't know firsthand. I have no idea. So my opinion doesn't really matter, but again, the difference in the situation is whereas Mel Gibson kind of accepted responsibility and then kept his head down and eventually you know he started getting some opportunities again, but his career is nothing like what it was in 2004, 2005, anything his career is not the same career that it was back then. Johnny Depp has not approached this stuff the same way a Mel Gibson has. He, he's the one who brought it to court, right? Thinking he could get himself exonerated. Instead, in the UK, the court said, actually, Mr. Depp, all the evidence and proof we've seen over these months says you did the things you're, you're accused of. That's not the result Johnny Depp wanted. And now he's got another court case. So how will that, I think that will negatively impact Johnny moving forward. Now that, Although is all contingent upon the fact that if this other case that he has that he's brought to court in the United States against Amber Heard, if the United States court if he wins that, well that changes the narrative, right? It at least balances it out. It means he has one huge court defeat and then he'll have one huge court win if he wins the U.S. one. But and again, if a U.S. court finds that you know, he was a victim of libel and he didn't do the things he did and he was falsely accused of all the stuff. If a court in the U.S. rules that, then we have to re-examine everything. I doubt a U.S. court will rule that because a U.K. court heard all the same evidence and they concluded that the evidence said Johnny Depp did the things he was accused of doing. But who knows? Let's wait and see. But let's for a second, just assume for a moment that Johnny Depp loses the American case as well. If he loses the American case as well, then now he has two court cases that he brought himself where the courts have said after months of evidence and arguments and testimony, we also find that Johnny Depp is guilty of the things he's accused of doing and did all these things, and he is not a victim of libel. If you now have two courts saying that, Now it's a very different situation than the Mel Gibson thing, right? This is Johnny Depp who's kept bringing it up and keeping this in the public eye. So it's going to be more difficult for Johnny Depp, I believe, to have a comeback later. Again, this is all depending, though, on how the U.S. court rules. If the U.S. court rules in his favor, you will see a Johnny Depp comeback sooner rather than later. Maybe not in the next 12 months but you will see, if Johnny Depp wins this, this U.S. court case, you are going to see a Johnny Depp comeback sooner rather than later. But if he loses this court case, it's going to be a significantly, my my take on this is that it's going to be a significantly more difficult proposition for him to salvage back together some form of a career in the manner that Mel Gibson was able to do. Now, again, I am no expert on Mel Gibson. I am no expert on Johnny Depp. I am no expert on the actual true facts. And by the way, none of you listening to this podcast are experts on it either. You might think you know something because you, I heard this on the internet and I read that on the internet and I heard this one thing completely out of context. You know, the problem with everybody today is everybody sees something on the internet and now they think they know everything. Now they think they know what's actually going on when the reality is there's a court that heard not five minutes of something on the internet, they heard months of evidence and testimony. That's why I just base my opinions on what the court finds. Because I'm smart enough to know that, and I'm not that smart, but I'm just smart enough to know that I don't know what actually happened. And I don't know what went on. So we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, again, just just to sum it up, I think the big difference, Craig, is the ways that... Johnny Depp and Mel Gibson have handled and conducted themselves and what they've decided to do and their attitudes and their approach post their self-inflicted wounds. That's been the difference. But again, it all comes down to what does the U.S. court find? Because if a U.S. court, again, after months and months and months and months and months of testimony and evidence and blah, 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 if they say, oh, you know what? Johnny Depp is a victim of libel. Then that changes the narrative. It absolutely must change the narrative. So, but we'll see. All right. S.K. Zhang writes, Hey, John. With all the movies uh getting pushed back again and again, I just can't how ha- hi- let me try that again. I just can't hype myself up for these movies anymore, especially Fast 9 007 and Wonder Woman 84. I know I'll probably watch them all once they come out, but I just don't have the same excitement level for them anymore. Do you feel the same? Just do a PVOD and get it over with during the holiday season. No, that would be an absolutely idiotic thing for them to do because they will lose tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars if they. Do do. do that. So no, that's not the right move. Here's the thing, SK. I I understand and I relate with this notion of it's hard to get really psyched for Wonder Woman 84 right now. It's hard to get too excited for Fast 9 or No Time to Die or Dune, right? And I think a part if not the big reason for that is these are all movies that have been moved multiple times. And quite frankly, we know that we're not even sure that the dates, all these movies say they're coming out, that they're actually coming out. As a matter of fact, right now we have no idea what's happening with wonder woman. 84. We just talked yesterday on the John Campia show about the fact that Warner brothers right now is deliberating doing a theatrical release on Christmas day for Wonder woman. 84. And then like a month later, putting out on like HBO max That's probably not what's going to happen. Um, Their other option is to move it to summer of 2021. That is most likely what will happen. But like, even if they say that, we don't know because this pandemic, the, the context changes day by day. And so it's hard for us as film fans, or I'll just speak for myself. It's hard for me as a film fan to get too terribly excited about, you know, No Time to Die. When as of right now, I'm not even sure when I'm going to get to see it. I'm not even sure that I'm going to get to see it anytime soon or or on the date that it's currently set for or, you know, fast nine or anything else. It's hard. But I'll tell you this. The other thing I know is that, look, we've got there is a vaccine coming. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how long it'll take to become effective. I don't know how long it'll take that they can make enough to, you know, immunize enough of the population. I I don't know any of that. But once this pandemic is about to be in our rearview mirror and we've got a new release date for Wonder Woman 84, and we know with certainty because the pandemic is now in our rearview mirror, now we know with certainty when that movie is coming or when you know, the Eternals is coming or when Black Widow is coming or when 007 is coming or when Fast and Furious 9 is coming, when Dune is coming. Once we know, I guarantee you, my excitement level is really going to start to rev up. I think right now it's being held in check because I just don't believe, I don't have a firm belief of knowing when I'm actually going to be able to see these things. It's hard to get too terribly excited for them when you don't even know when you're going to get to see it. But I think once we know I think you're going to be like me and you're going to feel that excitement rush back a lot and maybe even more than ever before because it's been so damn long since we've had a regular movie going night. You know what I mean? So that's my guess on that SK. Good question, though, man. All right. David Zuckerman writes. I'm a- I'm adding I am Heath Ledger to the list of movies that just might make the great John Campion cry. So now it's I am so now it's I am Heath Ledger. Clouds on Disney Plus and Paddleton. I keep hearing good things about Paddleton on Netflix. Uh, John says he generally doesn't cry in movies, but I bet him hundred dollars one of these will make him shed a tear or three. Uh, check them out, John, and I'll send you some money if I'm wrong. Well, yeah, listen, I I there's only been like seven films in history that have made me like weep. A lot of movies get me choked up. Like I get, like I feel it, you know, chest pounding girl. Like a lot of movies get me kind of choked up, but there's only been like seven movies in history that have like literally had tears coming down my face. So it's very unlikely of those, but I'm hearing good things. I've had a number of people, David, like you said, you're just the latest person to recommend. I am Heath Ledger. So I've got to get on that. I've I've now heard from like four or five of you guys uh, who watch the show. Tell me that this is one I've got to get on. So I'm going to get on that. Uh, not so much, not so sure about what clouds is. Paddleton is another one I've been hearing some good things about, but I will definitely get on Heath Ledger, uh, the Heath Ledger documentary soon. I will definitely get on Heath Ledger's documentary soon. All right. Thanks for that recommendation, David. All right. Cal writes, Hey John, greetings from Ottawa. I love Ottawa, Canada's nation's capital. A lot of people think Toronto is Canada's capital, which makes sense. It's the biggest city in the thing, but actually Ottawa, Ottawa is the capital city of Canada. Anyway. Hope all is good and everyone is doing well I wanted to know if you plan on visiting Hamilton during the holidays as always Keep on the filthy thank you so Much Cal um We haven't decided yet I don't know that we're going to be able To get back to Canada for the holidays And Because Hamilton Ontario Canada is my hometown That's where my family is and all that kind of stuff What Hesitating us going is the same thing that kept me from being able to go to my grandfather's funeral, which is right now, Canada has a law. If you come into Canada from the U.S., you instantly have to go into two weeks of quarantine. And I first of all, I don't know that I can be away for two full weeks. I just don't know that I can be away for two full weeks. So that's a problem. And that's the other thing. If you go into Canada, you don't get to leave the next day. If you enter Canada, you have to go into quarantine and you got to be there for a minimum of two weeks and one day. So um, yeah, plus it would mean I wouldn't get a like if I went, I couldn't see most of my family. I get to see my mom and dad. That's the most important thing. But I just don't know that we can afford that. And I can afford to be gone for two full weeks. And so we haven't completely decided yet, but i oh, it's not looking good. I don't know that I'm going to be able to get home for the holidays this year, but we're still trying to do some math and figure out a way we might be able to make it happen. All right. James Houston writes, hey, John, uh, you have hosted Q&As, for example, with the Avengers cast. I have. I've, I've been lucky enough to be a moderator for panels like the Avengers and other movies like that. Have you... Uh, you have discussions about specific films or TV on your YouTube channel. So I was curious if you plan on any sort of discussion on your own movie when it's officially released, I am always interested in going behind the curtain of a film. Um, you know what I was, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just thinking the other day about getting a couple, just a couple of the players who are involved in the movie to actually talk about, um, talk about the movie, maybe have like Robert Meyer Burnett interview me as a behind the scenes thing. I don't know. It's it's an interesting idea. Like I said, this week, I'm going to be announcing um, the release date uh, of movie trailers, a love story when it's going to be hitting online and where you'll be able to get it. And uh, maybe we'll add like a special feature to, or maybe we'll do a special feature and just put it up on the YouTube channel. It's a good question. It's something I'm thinking about. It's something that I'm thinking about. Thanks for asking that, James. All right. Next up, Uh, Ishan Sadev writes, we recently saw a teaser trailer for Constantine Films upcoming Monster Hunter movie, and it looks uh, like an awesome B-movie goodness uh constantine also announced a reboot of resident evil films with an entirely new cast both resident evil and monster monster hunter are more popular than ever in the video game realm and capcom has a wealth of other properties that could make for a for great feature films too devil may cry which i actually have a friend of mine who's working on a devil may cry thing just to let you know anyway uh street fighter is Constantine's meal ticket uh, to being a big player? Is this Constantine's meal ticket to being a big player again? I don't know. See, here's here, to be honest. I think there's a lot of promise in Monster Hunter. I think the Resident Evil films have all been bad, but they have their fans. They have their very passionate fans. Maybe you're one of them, and maybe this new one will be better than the old one. It it's interesting. It could turn out to be something. At the same time, I've seen a lot of these types of films come and go without much fanfare, so I don't know. I, I, I just simply don't know. All I can do is hope that they put out great movies and they'll turn it up. but here's the thing, though. This is where it gets interesting. Let's say Monster Hunter ends up being great and is a relative success, and same with, like, they have some big success and some critical response from Resident Evil movies. That positions them real well for this future stuff that you're talking about. But if, like, these other these first Fourier movies come out and they're, like, disappointing and don't really do all that great, then it doesn't bode well. So it's all going to be about what what's going to be their best foot forward. What's going to be the best foot forward here for them? And we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in, man. All right. Next up, Alex Cabal writes, hi, John. With the pandemic introducing the possibility of certain movies going straight to streaming, how does it affect, if at all, the pay of actors and directors who may have uh, been getting a portion of the theatrical gr- gross, or however that works? Is that only reserved for the biggest of stars and tentpole films, and does it usually amount to much? All right. Thanks a lot for that, Alex. Now, look, I, let me, let's be clear. I am not an expert on the inner working of the accounting practices of all the movies, and every movie is different from film to film. Every movie has its own unique sets of contracts and things that are done. So it's not like there's one big template, temple thing, but I can tell you for a movie, like say, let's look at new mutants, right? New mutants. This is a great example. New mutants didn't even have the option of going straight to streaming because there are some of the contracts involved with new mutants Specified the movie had to get a theatrical release. And to forego the theatrical release would have put them in breach of contract with several players. So that does become an issue. It will become very – now remember, this is only going to be a temporary problem because there's only so many movies that got made that were supposed to come out during the pandemic. So it's we're talking about a very small – in the grand scheme of things, we're only talking about a very, very small number of films that would actually be affected by this, okay? In the grand scheme of things, it's actually a very small number of films that have been affected by this. But I can see it becoming a legal uh, conundrum. Because, like, let's say you did a movie with Robert Downey Jr. This is fictitious, but just for the sake of an example, and Robert Downey Jr. decided that he would do the movie for ten million dollars, but he wants three percent. He wants three points on the movie, three percent of whatever the movie grosses. Well, if that movie made, you know, uh, you know, three hundred million dollars. Well, that's an additional nine million bucks that Robert Downey Jr. would have coming to him if the movie made five hundred million in the box office. That's an additional fifteen million that Robert Downey Jr. would be getting on top of the ten million that he got paid for Right. So th- this is huge cheddar. So, but if the studio foregoes that. Let's say the movie in question was a this this fictitious movie we're talking about was a Warner Brothers film. And Warner Brothers says, you know what? Yeah, the pandemic, we're just going to put it on HBO Max. Well, now Robert Downey Jr. is going to go, hold up. I'm entitled 3% of the box office grosses. And when we made this movie, it was understood that this movie was going theatrical. You are now depriving me of potentially 15 million extra dollars. Now, again, it'll, then it would just depend on the nature of the contract and all that kind of stuff. And there'd be a lot of moving pieces and who knows what would be what. But in that fictitious scenario, it causes some problems for the actor. It causes some problems for the studio. So, yeah, I could see there being a number of occasions where this could cause a real pickle. But again... In the grand scheme of movies and in the grand scheme of all the movies that come out, this is really only going to affect a small amount of them. But, yeah, theoretically, it, it could be a problem. All right. Next up, Manny Garcia writes, hello, John. Hope your weekend is going well. It is going well. I'm off to a good start, actually. No question. I just wanted to share that the latest Mandalorian episode was amazing. Also, right before we watched it, me and my girlfriend found out that we are soon expecting our own child in 2021. That is so exciting. I uh, can't wait to share the Star Wars universe with our own child and listen to your commentary. Best wishes, John. Oh, man, that is so exciting. And you know what's really great, too? Is that hopefully, I mean, if Pfizer can come through with these, uh, these vaccines are talking about your kids going to be born in a COVID free environment, which is great. So that's awesome. All the best to you and your partner and your forthcoming child. Uh, that is just very, very exciting. And uh, all of our best to you, man. And, uh, keep raising them, right. Just raise them right, Manny. All right. Next up, Tim Platt writes, DuckTales, Animaniacs and now Darkwing Duck have gotten or are getting reboots. I love all of those shows. Do you have any 80s or 90s cartoons you want to see get the reboot treatment next? Um, That's a good one. I, I don't know. I mean, look, they've tried several kicks at the can of Thundercats, all of which have been poor, to be honest. They've tried several things. I really believe I don't know what is holding up. Two things. A Thundercats motion picture and a He-Man Masters of the Universe picture. I but John, there is a I haven't seen nothing's happened on the He-Man thing. So that as of right now, that's still just a legend <laughs> until it actually happens, right? Um so uh yeah, I mean, those are two that I would love to see. As far as like just normal, like little things like Animaniacs, where uh nothing else comes to mind, but Yeah, I'm still sitting here waiting. Where is a legit PG-13 live-action Thundercats movie? And where is a legit PG-13, like kind of edgy PG-13, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe movie? Where is that? You know, my my friend Christian Harloff, he he describes the potential of a Masters of the Universe movie is that it really is the potential of Star Wars crossed with Lord of the Rings. That's what the potential of a Masters of the Universe movie is. So I don't know. I I just like to know where these damn things are, Tim. All right. Next up. Ben Rayner writes, John, I also love the frog lady moment in the episode this week. That's, of course, talking about Mandalorian. Would you say that the Mandalorian is on par with Game of Thrones? No, no, it is not. Uh, I loved this episode of Mandalorian. I haven't watched or read certain things, but I'm somewhat familiar with other things. I hope that makes sense. This episode makes me want to get caught up on the missed experiences. Try not to spoil anything. Sorry if that's confusing. But yeah, overall, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Yeah, the new episode of Mandalorian is great. I loved it. Uh, I loved it like I loved the, the last week's episode. I love Mandalorian. Is it on the same par with Game of Thrones? Hell no. No, it's nowhere near. It's nowhere close. No, it's a great show. And I enjoy it a lot. Game of Thrones, though, is arguably the most, critically the most successful television show of all time. I mean, what did they end up? I, I Honestly, I'm not being facetious. I think something like 127 Emmys that uh, Game of Thrones won, including best series, I don't know how many times. Plus, they just broke the record for most Emmy wins in one year with the final season. I mean, so no. Mandalorian is not that. It's great, fun Star Wars storytelling. But it's also very, it's very simple, which is great. Sometimes the best stuff is the keep it simple, stupid, is the kiss method, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, John Favreau's talked about that. And there's something beautiful in the purity of that. But it's no, no. And that doesn't mean, look, all, all television and all entertainment is subjective. You may personally prefer mandalorian over game of thrones that great nothing wrong with that that's perfect but no you're never going to see mandalorian on the same level of game of thrones but that's an unfair comparison game of thrones again is arguably the most successful television show of all time so it's not a fair comparison nor is it any shade on mandalorian which i love to say it's not on the same level of game of thrones but that's just me all right next up uh darren barnes writes hi john the new stagecraft technology used on Mandalorian is super impressive, allowing actors to understand more about the scene's surroundings. Is this the beginning of the end for the traditional green screen way of filmmaking? All right. So for those of you to understand what it is Darren is talking about, stagecraft, for those of you who've not seen, for much of the Mandalorian, not all of it, they do go out on location from time to time, but a lot of the Mandalorian is shot on this stage that is surrounded with this giant moving interactive screen. And that screen becomes the environment that Mandalorian is shot in. And as the cameras move, the screen moves as if they're in a real environment. Um, If you have not, if you really want to get a taste of this, go online on YouTube and look up Mandalorian stagecraft or I highly recommend going over to Disney Plus and checking out their docu-series they did on Mandalorian season one. And there's a full episode dedicated to stagecraft, but it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. A lot of these scenes you see in Mandalorian is not Mandalorian actually standing in a desert somewhere. It's him standing on a stage with these giant screens behind him with the scene. It's crazy how good it looks. Will it replace green screen? Nope. Nope. No, it will not. And here's why. More than replacing green screen elements, what Stagecraft has done has replaced a lot of on-location elements that they would have needed to do. Like, for a lot of these traditional, regular, you know, normal shots of Mandalorian, there's a reason why a lot of Mandalorian scenes are like on an ice world or in a desert because they're very, very simple right? They're very simple. So traditionally, if they wanted to have that scene of Mandalorian kind of walking through the canyon on the desert world, and then he gets jumped by a bunch of bounty hunters that he's got to fight, well, what they would normally do is they'd go to a location, find that location that looks the way they want it to look, and then bring the crew out there and shoot it there. But now, instead of doing that, They just get to stay at home in the studio and go onto the stage, go onto the stagecraft thing, right? And do it there. So really what stagecraft has really replaced more is replaced on location shooting and made all these environments possible right in their own house, right? Absolutely. Some stuff that would be done traditionally green screen will be done in stagecraft. Absolutely. but. When you look at how expensive that stage is, when you look at how complicated and how advanced that thing is, it will never replace traditional green screen. It's just not practical. You can't do it. Not to mention, I remember for – what was the name of that one – movie the what's it called again the uh zodiac killer i think zodiac right so for zodiac what they did was they wanted to incorporate practical stuff with digital stuff so they've had entire cityscapes where half of what you're seeing is the cityscape but then they also drop in a big green screen to uh fill in the rest of the city right And, and just stuff like that also you know, for a lot of people, a green screen is $20, not the however half a billion dollars in a stagecraft thing is, you know. So, no, you will see some things that would have been done on green screen before can now be done on stagecraft. But again, to me, stagecraft is really more of a stand-in for practical sets than it is for green screen stuff. Not to mention, it is far more economical to do things green screen-wise. And so a lot of filmmakers will never be able to afford to go into a stagecraft thing. But just in Burbank alone, there's like 30 or 40 green screen studios. Like this big studio with a giant green screen on the wall, I can go in and shoot tomorrow and pay like 50 bucks an hour. I can pay like 50 bucks an hour To go in and shoot on that green screen or I can spend, I don't know, $150,000 an hour to go and shoot it in StageCraft. Not to mention having to hire all the staff and crew to then program it and blah, blah, blah. So, no, I I do not think we are ever going to see StageCraft replace or be the end of traditional green screen. It's a new tool. It's a new tool. It's a brand new tool that's now at some filmmakers, some elite filmmakers disposal to do. But I don't think you're going to see green screen go anywhere. All right. Ryan Bennett sends in the next one. He writes, hey, John. With streaming services having already become a competitive choice against cable, TV, and movie theaters, do you think that the pandemic may have put the final nail in the coffin for the in-person movie theater experience? Maybe theaters will become reserved for film festivals and premium experiences? No. If anything, honestly, while a lot of people seem to have that frame of mind, I actually see it as it's going to be the exact opposite. Um, If anything... One of the things this pandemic has shown is that there, while the new streaming world is great, streaming is an excellent, excellent addition to our entertainment profile. But does it replace the theatrical experience? Every bit of proof that we've seen during this pandemic says absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, you look at the, the financial disaster that Mulan ended up being. Uh, when you look at the, the money being generated by... And the benefit being generated by these films going straight to streaming, it's become even more apparent to the studios that you can't replace the theatrical experience. You know, Chris Rock came out a couple of weeks ago. We might have mentioned this on the show, too, on the John Campus show. But Chris Rock came out a few weeks ago and talking about the fact that, you know, the movie going experience is also part of our cultural experience, right? It is the most economical and popular thing for friends and dates and families to go out and do together like going out to a night at the movies with a couple of friends is infinitely cheaper despite however much it costs for a bag of popcorn and a movie ticket it's infinitely cheaper than going to a night at the bar with a couple of your friends or going to a night uh, to a Broadway show or going to a football game and I love going to football games but it's expensive to go to football games if anything You know, there's that there as well. But for the studio's point of view, it's the pure finances of it. It's just the pure finances of it. Movies cannot make or generate the kind of revenue that they do in the theaters on a streaming platform. They just can't. It's been proved over and over and over again. And again, highlighted by what would have been probably minimum uh, an $800 million film in the box office in Mulan ended up being an utter financial disaster for uh, for them. So no, I, I really don't. The one thing that could kill the movie theaters is the pandemic itself, though. Like if movie theaters can't open up and they stay closed and they all run out of money and they go out of business. That's a different thing. But no, I, I think you're going to see once the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, whenever that is, but once the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, you're going to see the theatrical experience explode again. I I, I fully believe that. You're going to see it explode again. Anyway. All right. Next up. Matthew Gray writes, Hey, John, I was disappointed to hear the new Mortal Kombat film won't get a release date until cinemas reopen. I know it's a smaller budget film, so they don't have the money to drop on marketing. But my question is... Do you think it would benefit from doing a Deadpool and accidentally leaking a few minutes of footage on YouTube Uh, footage showing an R rated fight scene that could get people excited for the film keen to have your thoughts? Thanks. No, I think it would be a mistake. Now, here's what I think. I think dropping something like that when the movie is four months away or three and a half months away, like when you know when you have your release date, because here's the problem. And we go back to Godzilla King of the Monsters on this all the time, just because it's a great poster child for this. But there are other examples. But let's use Godzilla King of the Monsters as, as our litmus test here. They dropped and really essentially started the marketing campaign for Godzilla King of the Monsters a year before that movie came out. And the problem is, I believe wholeheartedly, and Rob agrees with me on this, that one of the reasons that Godzilla King of the Monsters was a disappointment at the box office, it wasn't a complete flop, but it was a disappointment for sure, was that everybody's excitement and enthusiasm got blown a year ago. And by the time Godzilla King of the Monsters came out, it's like a lot of people are asking, oh, wait, that hasn't come out in theaters yet? Really? We've been hearing about it for over a year. You don't want to blow your proverbial load too soon. There's no point in getting people excited about the movie right now because what we have really seen, I mean, we've known this for decades, but what we've really seen in the last couple of years is that hype and enthusiasm are like mist on a Sunday morning. It starts to dissipate. It dissipates and it disappears. You can get a certain amount of shelf life out of hype and excitement, but it's not indefinite. It won't just stay there until whenever the movie comes out. So you got to be strategic. This is why people in PR firms get paid big, big bucks. You got to be strategic about when you release something like that. The Deadpool example was completely different. The Deadpool example was, this is something like what a Deadpool movie could be if we did one. Right. It's not like the Deadpool movie was shot and sitting on a shelf and then they, quote unquote, leaked out that little test footage. No, they were just trying to convince people this is a movie that could get made. And this is what a movie like this would kind of feel like if they made one. That's different with Mortal Kombat. The movie shot. Now you're marketing the film. And I think you got to be very. I don't think you release marketing when you don't even know when that movie's going to come out yet, and because whatever excitement you build right now will likely be disappeared and gone by the time the film actually comes out, and it wouldn't have helped your case. So I think a a intelligent, strategically timed marketing push that it could include a leaked scene like that, but you've got to time them right. I really believe that's becoming as as the marketplace gets more and more crowded. And now, as you have streaming as well, and everything is putting out all this marketing all over the place, other marketing will get drowned out. You've got to be strategic about what you release and when you release it. It's—I I, believe—it's really, really important. So that's uh, that's kind of my take on that. Anyway, I am excited to see the movie, though. I got to say, Matthew, I'm I'm quite excited to see uh, that uh, Mortal Kombat movie. All right, next up, uh, Andre Maria writes, "Hey John." Between the big four channels in America, which do you think has a claim for the greatest of all time based on importance, innovation, ratings and show quality, ABC, CBS, Fox or NBC? Um, I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't I haven't followed television history enough. Like, I'll tell you this. When I think this is just me, when I think of TV networks. My mind first goes to NBC. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Now I could be wrong here, but I think um, let me double check this, but I think like a team was an NBC show. I think Uh, a team NBC. Yep. The a team was NBC. I think Knight Rider was NBC. Let me let me look it up. Yeah. Knight Rider was NBC when I so back when I was a kid. And watching TV, those are kind of the, the shows like that were kind of my, you know, that that was the the stuff I was getting weaned on, you know, when I was just a little kid, and I was like night Rider and A Team and stuff like that. And I would run around in the neighborhood with my neighborhood friends, and we'd play A Team and and whatever. They were NBC shows, so and then you know Saturday Night Live and all that kind of stuff. So I can't quantify this at all. All I can tell you is that when I think of American network television, my mind first goes to. NBC. All right. Derek Romick writes, hey, John, did you see the interview recently in which Zack Snyder said the additional photography he's doing for the Snyder Cut will amount to about four or five minutes of additional footage for the series? I understand a lot can be covered in four to five minutes of screen time, but that still kind of shocked me. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Well, yeah. uh, So for those of you who missed, missed it, Zack Snyder is doing a whole bunch of additional photography. That ultimately, he just said in an interview will probably end up being four to five minutes of additional like screen footage that he hadn't originally shot back when he shot Justice League. I have a feeling it's going to ultimately be more than that. I think he's guesstimating right now. I think it's probably going to be more than that, but probably not much more than that. So I'd buy the five, six, seven minute, probably two to three scenes worth of extra stuff. That's my guess. And again it just kind of highlights I mean I, you know I don't want to keep going back to this but it just kind of highlights again how wrong everybody was who said there was a completed finished ready to go signer cut all you know all Warner Bros had to do was just release it it never existed it never existed You had Zack Snyder's cut from what he shot and showed to the Warner Brothers executives, but it was completely unfinished. And, you know, the reports are right now it's going to cost like 70 to 80 million dollars to finish it and get it all done. Not to mention all this new stuff that Zack Snyder's putting in. I was probably like, honestly, I was probably expecting about 12 minutes of new stuff on top of the stuff that he hadn't shot. But remember, there's so much stuff that Zack Snyder shot that we never saw, Right. There's at least two hours worth of Zack Snyder shot material that did not make it into the Justice League theatrical version, at least two hours. So it's going to be interesting to see how all that kind of turns out, whether it's four to five minutes. That means a couple of extra scenes, whether it's six to seven minutes, which might, you know, maybe three extra scenes. Who knows? Not sure. But all that we know is that right now there's still a lot of work to do on this thing. There's still a lot of work to do on this thing. So we'll see how much new stuff uh, there actually is. But for us, the audience, a hell of a lot of it is going to be new stuff to us because there's hours of material that he shot that was never made into the movie. So let's see how that all works out. All right. Last one for today comes to us from Dickens Benjamin, who writes, Hey, John, love Star Wars, but what's the big deal with Darth Vader? Uh, Through episodes one and six, he did nothing to gain uh, the title of one of the best villains. What am I missing? When did killing an old man, kids and flipping sides, every chance become a badass? Well, I mean, there's a couple of misnomers there, uh, Dickens. Number one, being a badass does not make you a great villain. It doesn't hurt. Being a being a big badass doesn't hurt, but being a badass is not what makes a great villain, right? You look at Hans Gruber in uh, Die Hard, Right. Did we see him running around and breaking 40 guys' necks? No. Was he like some big, huge ultimate badass? Not in the traditional sense, he wasn't. But he is, de facto, one of the top five greatest villains of all time. You know, Darth Vader, from the moment he walked on screen... And forget episodes one through three, okay? Just take get that shit out of here. Forget episodes one through... Th- Nobody cares about episodes one through three. I mean, not as far as the discussion about the prominence of Vader. So... Vader, from the moment he first comes on screen in Star Wars A New Hope, as the smoke clears in that walkway on the Tantive, and he comes walking through the mist, and that music strikes, that music strike hits, this dark, ominous figure with that breathing and all that kind of stuff, and the fact that everybody cowers in fear. And it was also the presence of Vader. The presence of Vader made people piss themselves, right? You know, it's the biggest badass is the one who never has to demonstrate how much of a badass they are, right? The toughest guy in the schoolyard is the one who doesn't have to prove he's the toughest guy in the schoolyard. The guy that's constantly running around trying to pick fights to prove he's a tough guy, that's not the toughest guy in the schoolyard. The toughest guy in the schoolyard is the one when you're in their presence, you just know this is the toughest SOB here. And Vader was that. Like everything from even the subtle little the subtle little um you know executive meeting going on on the Death Star and some dude says something Vader doesn't like and he says I find your lack of faith disturbing and he just starts to choke the sucker out and every and nobody has the guts to say anything Like you're in there's they're in this high level imperial meeting of officers and commanders and important people and Vader just straight up starts choking one of them to death and nobody says a word they all just sit in silence because they don't want to be the next one that vader does that to until finally tarkin says enough finally tarkin does. but that it's the presence of him no villain ever in history it's not thanos not uh not anybody has ever carried the presence of a villain like vader um it's uh it's never been equaled and dare i say never will Never and don't get me wrong, there are other great, great villains. Thanos is an amazing villain. Uh Hans Gruber is an amazing villain. But there's just something about Vader, man. Just something about Vader. All right, guys, that'll do it for this installment of the Open Mic Podcast again. Big thank you out to all of our Patreon supporters. Number one, just for being Patreon supporters. But thank you to all you guys who are Patreon supporters who sent in these questions to give us all these great topics for us to talk about here today on the podcast. Hey, guys, listen, don't forget, the John Campia Show runs Monday through Friday, streams at 10 a.m. when there's no technical problems, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we, of course, put those episodes up here as well on the podcast feed. Guys, remember, the pandemic is getting worse. It's not getting better right now until we get that damn... Uh, vaccine. So please, please now more than ever do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.